The future of work looks a lot more like people aren't playing in instruments in the symphony, they're becoming the orchestrators. If you're passionate about something, the tools may change, the technologies may change, but then you're willing to adapt. And the way you find your passions, you just go and taste stuff. And then I really sunk my teeth into maps where I spent almost four years working on a next generation digital twin of the world. This idea of digitizing reality and then sort of kit bashing, it started with photogrammetry. Nerfs added on to photogrammetry by allowing us to capture a lot more of the complexity of reality. For Battlefront, they went to all these locations where the Star Wars movies were filmed and just scanned the crap out of everything. Gosh, I think Apple just made VR cool. Let's dive right in, baby. Three, two, did you just drink oh, without sorry, me, bro? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Dude, you didn't even cheers, man. Sorry, sorry. What the hell? Sorry, right? <laughs> okay, one, all right. Two. Three, two, one. Cheers. Oh, wow. Got a new coffee in the house, baby. <laughs> Bro. What is this? This is a Starbucks Kirkland espresso coffee. And uh, it's it's a good one. As you guys know, we're very, very much zooted all the time with the Starbucks coffee. And we can never get too much of it. But without anything else distracting and disturbing us, it is episode number 20, 20 of yeah. Bad Decisions Let's go. Podcast right here. So we just want to say, first of all, welcome and second of all thank you thank you every single one of you guys who has stayed with us since episode number one up until now you guys are an og you guys are amazing you guys are the reason why we're doing this every damn week honestly the day that we started i couldn't believe that we ended up on episode 20 now i know it's it's been a crazy we never missed a week so no. far some no. weeks we even did two podcasts we did lose friends and sleep <laughs> yeah. and and <laughs> Our mental health and our physical... No, I'm just joking. Some of them we did, actually. Yeah. But it, it's been worth it because we made some great friends along the way. Every single week, we talk and learn from all the inspiring guests. And before we bring our guests today, something that me and Farah had a discussion about last week, and I just want to set the tone just very briefly. The reason we're doing this podcast, and we never really talk about it, is we want to bring on inspiring guests who've done great, groundbreaking work in any field, honestly. It doesn't have to be the fields that we're specifically invested in ourselves. And we want to just bring them on to talk about their journey, their story, and hopefully we can learn something from them. And you guys can also learn something along the way and get inspired. And, and to be honest, every single time the podcast finishes, I have learned something. Yeah. And I cannot imagine like people who are coming from different backgrounds. We, we had Ben, who was a filmmaker. We had yeah. a, Olaf, who was a photographer. But their story and their journey was so inspiring to us. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it's so inspiring for everybody who were listening. Yeah. So it's, it's all about giving you guys more reason to make that bad decision, yeah. to start whatever you want to start, and also learn from all these guests that we have. Damn right. So Farhad, uh, let's not waste any more time, man. We have a freaking special guest today, and I, I will let you do the honors. Tell everybody who we got on. So our guest today is an ex-Google product manager who has made significant contribution to some of the most groundbreaking projects. Faraz, I'm pretty sure you know about Google Immersive View. Oh yeah, I do. You know about Google Maps. Hell yeah. He even worked on the Geospatial API. Damn right And he what did. is even crazier, besides doing all of this, he has made a huge community on social media, over 300,000 subscribers on YouTube mm -hmm. and around a million followers on TikTok. Have Damn you seen right. his video? He has so many freaking videos 
all of our social media. And I, I'm like, how do you even manage to make all of these while working on all these cool projects at the same time? Farhad, let's 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 bring him on. Our guest today is Bilaval Sidhu. How's it hey, going, great man? Great to be here. I got the I got the classic cup of coffee. Oh, We're about yeah. to get caffeinated. <laughs> and uh, and given the sheer amount of overlap we have in terms of like uh, you know the modalities of creation we're interested in, I'm I'm excited to dig in. So thank you for having me on. No worries, man. It's a pleasure to finally be able to speak with you here. First of all, can we do all a, a, a cheers right Virtual now? Cheers. Virtual cheers. Virtual yeah. cheers. Boom. Mm. <laughs> we hope everyone watching is also having mm. some sort of drink, coffee, tea, whatever is your thing. Just go for it. You know, this is going to be a very enjoyable podcast. And before we start with anything serious, I have to ask you, you've made loads of VFX and CGI videos, especially on TikTok. You're just scrolling through all of them. Uh, and you started, I guess, during COVID. What yeah. is with you and your addiction with UFOs and siren heads? Because we oh. saw 200 of those videos, which are amazing, yeah, yeah. by the way. It's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, so the UFO stuff. I mean, I've always been fascinated with this stuff. Like uh, the first Hollywood movie that I saw that got me into visual effects was uh, was Independence Day. Oh. And honestly, it was the behind the scenes for Independence Day. Or if you remember the scene where it's like the mothership over New York and just like yeah. Yeah. the explosion ensues. So I've had a lifelong fascination for that. And then on TikTok specifically, mm -hmm. if you remember the raid Area 51 trend that started yeah. off. Oh, yes. So it's, yeah. so it's like, you know, making a bunch of random videos. And I just like put one of those videos out there and it just like took off. Right. <laughs> and it was like one of those like hockey puck, like, holy crap, what's happening here? So, you know, as a wise creator once told me, if something worse, you double down on the damn thing. So mm. uh, it's it's been an amazing way for me to just like talk about these esoteric kind of scary phenomenon and it's the same thing with siren head man it's like there's this like that sound of the siren evokes this like visceral the eerie sound right yeah yeah it's like you don't need to like even a kid is like oh holy crap what is oh, that yeah. and it's like the bomb raid siren right if you remember like in the world wars like that's the sound that like an entire generation grew up with so there's something deeply visceral in us about that and something about like like scary, spooky content is very interesting to me. And so visual effects are such a cool way of like, I don't know, painting this sort of universe and every mm -hmm. short is like a, a vignette into this like sort of alternate spooky esoteric dimension, you know? 100%. And I think every person who is a 3D artist or a 2D artist, no matter where you are, there is that point that 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 singular point that you can go back to be like this is the moment where I got inspired to get into this or I got motivated and for you it was Independence Day then. and, and the best oh, the man. best part is also when you can recreate your childhood memories yeah. and you know now you have the power to not like I watched that movie I want to recreate that that's the best feeling that's ever. so true I feel like as 3D artists the first thing you realize you're like wait a second I can now like remake all the movies that I love <laughs> or like different scenes that I love you did even uh, I think the first video I on TikTok was the Iron Man video or something, if I'm yeah, not mistaken, yeah, totally. right? Yeah, totally. Super cool stuff you worked on. And how did the, is that how you were sort of led into this journey of working at Google? Can you walk us through that? What was that journey like? Because you started, you know, 3D animation with uh, 3ds Max, if I'm not mistaken, or, right, or was yeah, yeah. Totally. So how did that <laughs> lead you into going into exactly like that's that's a really long time ago? How did that lead you into going into Google and and ending up here today, essentially? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's like uh, you know, I'd say the theme you already hit on. Like, uh, I, I at the age of 11, I was really into Flash Five at the time. And cartoon animation, you know, just like this is the early days of the web. 
And I saw this cartoon, right, effectively, like this uh, TV show on Discovery Kids that was about mm -hmm. mega movie magic. How do you make these visual effects? And I kind of fell in love with the notion that my computer could, like the same computer I was using to make these like colorful, full cartoony, like, you know, flash animations could be used to kind of seamlessly blend reality and imagination. Mm -hmm. Exactly what you said about, you know, sort of taking stuff you see on the silver screen, as it was called then, and sort of like recreating it like like really crappy backyard lightsaber battles with your <laughs> friends with like a crazy like in you know, a spaceship landing so you know when i was 14 like uh, i i obviously got deep into 3ds max then obviously it's like maya was the tool to learn mm -hmm. i started picking up after effects and so like at 14 15 you know right i was entering high school i was like oh my goal in life is to be a visual effects supervisor and i want to go work at ilm and i want to have like you know your name credit at the end of the movie like yeah. that was sort of the dream and then as I got older, I went to boarding school and like got exposed more to the technical side of things. And I really enjoy this idea of like building actual things. And so that led me to like, despite getting into my film school, USC, like dream film school, USC, I decided to study computer science and business. Mm -hmm. And this is right around when the mobile boom was sort of happening. Like the app store had just come out. I graduated 2013 and everyone was like, hey, like we got to like web 2.0 is cool, but how do we like go mobile first? And so that led me into product design right after graduation. I worked at a consulting company called Deloitte Digital. It was their like innovation arm. And I did basically like product design stuff for two years. And that was interesting because all the stuff, again, I learned with After Effects, 3DS Max, Maya, just kind of got fueled into like the earliest instantiations of AR, VR. So this is like circa 2013 uh, was like, you know, the Google Glass was the thing, right? This yeah, is like that was nobody machine knew, like, learning. Yeah. Yeah, that time, like, nobody was talking about AR. Totally. And if they were, they were like, oh, what is this dorky thing? Like, we were barely coming to grips with what you could do on the phone, right? Like, Uber and, like, ride-sharing apps were just reaching ubiquity. Instagram was just sort of starting to blow up. Same thing with Snapchat and so forth. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I kind of let the YouTube creator thing go completely through college. Got into basically building AR, VR experiences uh, as I graduated, uh, first enterprise, really boring stuff, like mm. a field service expert on an oil rig going through like a maintenance checklist because they need to be mm. hands-free while they're assessing and, and, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, fixing the equipment. And then VR happened, you know, the, the DK2 came out, uh, Meta acquired uh, freaking uh, uh, like Oculus at the yeah. time, right? Like, and so that kind of like 360 video suddenly popped up. Wow. And again, like, that like really cheesy Steve Jobs quote of like the dots connect looking back suddenly yeah. like all the skill that I'd learned around like 3D visual effects etc just like manifested itself in AR VR so like mm. I like to describe AR as basically the visual effects pipeline running in real time on the phone in your pocket or the headset on your face all yeah. the same stuff right yeah and so yeah that got me into vr video and then i was like all right enterprise is cool but like i really want to do this at scale and so at that time like circa 2017 google was like building out this like uh you know essentially vr initiative to create 360 and 3d vr camera systems worked on that then worked on ar like you know this is like three hype cycles ago so vr was the first <laughs> hype cycle then ar was the second yep. hype cycle and then i really sunk my teeth into maps where i spent almost four years working on you know, a next generation digital twin of the world and then creating consumer and developer experiences from that. So the immersive view and the geospatial API that you alluded to. But along the way, the theme has just been blending reality and imagination. And then I would say Google was more of the utilitarian version of that, blending the physical and digital world. So, 
you know, along the way, I discovered various roles. I eventually ended up enjoying product management, et cetera. And so, yeah, like after doing my six years and after my YouTube, TikTok and all this stuff, like sort of hit a threshold as this generative AI wave is, is uh, sort of picking up steam. I was like, hey. Let's dive right in, baby. Oh, and here yeah. we are that, having a conversation. That's that's an amazing. But I, I want to go back a little bit and ask sure, one question please. because you mentioned you had two choices. One was going for computer science and film school at that time. Your yeah. decision to go for computer science, was it solely a personal decision? Oh my god, or I was, was gonna ask the Or same was question. it peer pressure? Oh, I mean, yeah. coming from coming from Asian heritage, I personally yeah. was forced into going to engineering school. <laughs> bitch! Which I didn't. So listen to this. I went to engineering school on the first day, orientation day. I went to the class. They started talking. I was like, I'm out of here. Yeah. I'm out of here. I, I did computer science and I can say not forced, but definitely wasn't a choice I probably would have gone with if I was all alone about my own. And when I went in, I remember my parents, um, they, again, they didn't force me, but they did sort of push the decision into my face. Like, hey, computer <laughs> science. And their excuse was, you're good with computers. You know how to, you know you how how to, to play things. games. You know how to play so that's games. how I ended up there. How did you end up with... Uh, you no, know, I, the, yeah, the question is like personal choice yeah. and it's okay. I mean, of course, it's okay to have been peer pressure at that time. It's normal. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's a great question. I think, you know, I, again, uh, you know, being from South Asian Indian heritage, like I think I like all immigrant like families kind of face this sort of, mm -hmm. you know, I was talking to my Jewish friend the other day. It's the same thing. Like, it's like, yeah. you know, are you doctor, lawyer, engineer? Yeah. <laughs> Pick one. Luckily, my parents were pretty good about this. Like, I would say like my mom, like got me into like got me a computer very early. You know, I spent half of my life in India. Like, so she got me like a friggin' internet connection before not 56k modem throwback you know mm -hmm. before anyone had that type of stuff or it was a rarity and you know like for a while they really like spurred my passion i would say around the 10th grade uh like around 10th grade came around there was definitely a little bit of peer pressure it's like oh beta you know if you want to be <laughs> successful in life you know you better you know you better start your stem scores better be you know keep going up and so you know, they never actively forced me, but what I like to joke with them is like, hey, your propaganda worked. And it's not always it's about like, parents. Ah. Like, it's your friends too. Like, it's not always the totally. parents. Like, all of, all of my friends went to engineering school. Yeah. Right? Most of my friends yeah. went to science school. It's yeah. not even, even if you put the parents' peer pressure aside, it was rarely that someone could pick, like, I want to study art. Like, Dude, what in the Iran, fuck? where totally. we're from, art school is looked down upon. Like, if you're shit in school you go to art school like that's that's like that's how they look at it which is horrible. horrible i remember growing up up until high school thinking oh shit did you hear this guy went to art school like that was like <laughs> if you failed in life you would end up in art school and it's funny because all our life is now related to art and we're like totally we're more successful in our minds and happy as as we've ever been and so it's it's just crazy how these things work totally but i mean like i'm sure you empathize with this too like looking back like the way I sliced the needle is I'm going to study computer science and business because I wanted to do both. I didn't want to just do CS. I love the business side of like, it's cool to have cool tech, but how do you actually deploy this at scale to either, you know, like really make an impact on the world, whatever metric of success you have there. Right. But at the same time, like, dude, like college in the U S is so flexible. You know, my advisor was so awesome. I took all of these like Maya classes and new compositing classes, but then also took like business intelligence classes that were like, this is like the earliest instantiation of machine learning being applied to big data was the buzzword back then. So I was able to make this sort of like 
really well-rounded curriculum that if I had just, gosh, I think about like if I had gone to film school, cause I have a lot of friends who did that. It's like, well, here's like, let's go shoot like on actual film mm-hmm. and let's go make your like thesis film, like, and spend a year doing that. I don't think those skills would have as readily transitioned into the world. You know, we live in today, like even the stuff you're doing with unreal engine, I bet the fact that you spend some time in engineering probably makes it easier to mm-hmm. pick up those type of things. So, yeah. you know, hence creative technology, man. I think like it's the intersection of like being able to wheel the world of bits and the world of atoms kind of together mm-hmm. is just like, yeah. there's some secret sauce there. So yeah, that's a little bit of the story. And uh, looking back, no regrets at all. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> okay, that's like, cool. 100%. I would say um, yeah. if you're happy where you are today, there shouldn't be any regret, even if you think you might've done something wrong, because if you did that, that led you to where you are today, even totally. if it was wrong or right. Now, uh, one thing I do want to mention is you brought up doctor, lawyer, engineer. These are the three categories that most parents, at least in our, for. in our tradition, praise. Yeah. And I want to give some credibility to you before I even ask this question. You're playing and uh, you're experimenting with all the latest AI technologies every single day. And we see it all over your Twitter feed. And so for everyone watching, you are essentially someone who can truly answer this question really well. Doctor, lawyer, engineer. With all the things that are happening with AI, and, and, and we know where AI, we can sort of predict where AI is going, right? Where we talked about this with our previous guest with Farhad, where general doctors, right? They essentially here in Canada, healthcare is pretty shit. Like we've only been here for about a year. And just what I'm realizing is I go to the doctor, first of all, getting into the queue is difficult getting to a specialist is even more difficult the the wait times are crazy and so eventually when there's going to be an ai that can solve every single one of your questions and problems regarding your health can read your health essentially and answer that or let's talk about a lawyer all these contracts that can be written with ai in the quickest way possible in the best way possible how do you think the the new generation will Gen go into yeah go into education system and career paths considering how ai is changing the world it's a great question um and and a very profound one that obviously has people either super excited about the disruption that's ahead or sort of entrenched retreating into this defensive position of like pushing back on any change that lies ahead. So I think like what can we be sure of the world is absolutely going to change the, the way job functions look today may not look the same way in terms of what, how it'll actually manifest itself. I have a couple of like my, here's my thesis, right? My thesis is that right now specialization is, is deeply valued in the world we live in, right? Like, so y'all are from Iran, you know, there's this joke, like, where like the, the amount of PhDs in Iran is just like way too damn high. <laughs> How you did know, you know that? Like, every, I, I mean, dude, I like, yeah, I went to Bay Area. And so like you walk around like Stanford campus, like it's just like everyone's Iranian and they they have a PhD. It's insane, right? <laughs> it's like, and, and it's like this, that's the, like the apex of specialization, right? You're subspecializing in this, like this, like this, this like the tip of the iceberg effectively. Yeah. Right. And you're losing the broader picture. So, and that yeah. applies in all professions, right? If you think about the, like the creative industry, you work in, work in 3D animation. Okay, so are you like a modeling artist, texturing artist? Are you a rigger? Are you an animator? You know, are you good at lighting? Are you a compositor? 
the generalist has really been emerging as a profession, I would say, in like social media realm, right? Like where you have more people trying to do with less. And so effectively, most industries, including computer science, right? Like you subspecialize in some discipline. Hey, are you a front end engineer specializing in these set of technologies or back end in these type of technologies? And same thing with machine learning. Only recently in machine learning with like sort of the transformer architecture, we're seeing sort of one like sort of, you know, kind of approach applied to a broad swath of problems. But historically, even within a subset of AI, like computer vision, there's been a lot of subspecialization. So in other words, you had to sort of be this like T-shape person, if you've heard mm. of the T-shape analogy. Yeah. You're broad in certain areas and you're deep in other areas. What I think is happening with AI and like AI agents, multiple sort of AI entities that you can work with that are specialized in different domains as you go from being T-shaped to being a tripod or a table. That's like sort of the image I like to evoke when we talk about this stuff. So, you know, if you're a lawyer that's like deep in, for example, corporate law right now, which is very boilerplate contractual stuff. I mean, homie, that job is going away. Like, that, you know, like I don't think there's any way about it. Right. And I think the same applies to, for example, like, if you break down like all the newsletter content that exists, that's purely summarizing the news. Mm -hmm. Like that's obviously going to be automated away. But we as humans, I think, are going to just start creating new roles that orchestrate these AI agents, mm -hmm. along with our own well of expertise and other humans' well of expertise at this higher level of abstraction. So mm -hmm. to me, the future of work looks a lot more like people aren't like playing an instrument in the symphony. They're becoming the orchestrators. Mm -hmm. And how that manifests and permeates across all the roles you mentioned, I think could vary, but certainly apply to doctors too, right? You're totally right. Like, I think for the foreseeable future, humans will feel very confident if a human has a final call mm -hmm. on, especially if you're getting, you know, surgery or something, mm -hmm. thing like that done. But when it comes to, hey, looking at your functional, you know, fMRI scan or looking at your CT scan or looking at you know, like uh, certain symptoms and data points from your Apple watch and mm -hmm. doing this crunching, this sort of big data analysis. Of course we want machines doing that. So mm -hmm. like, I, I think human intelligence will sort of coexist with machine intelligence and we'll mm -hmm. just, just like you go on a Slack and you might have a bunch of full remote employees. I've got a mm -hmm. feeling it'll sort of be like, we're, we're all just going to be working with these AI agents that help us get stuff done in the world. And I don't think that'll mean we'll all be sitting on our butts in VR headsets like the movie Wall-E. Mm -hmm. I think, I think that only happens if there's like a fixed amount of labor that's needed in the world, right? Like mm -hmm. I don't think that'll be the case. We'll conjure up sort of new job lines, mm -hmm. you know, new canvases for creation. Even like I don't think we're going to fully automate away creation and and be like content with like sort of the dystopian point of like a TikTok style algorithm just procedurally giving yeah. you like yeah. infinite content. We're not going <coughs> to, excuse me. No worries. Maybe there's a place for that, but that's not going to be the ubiquitous thing. What I'll end by saying is like the, the challenging part about this transformation than any other one, which is why a lot of people are freaking out about this is I think the rate at which we're creating jobs might be slower than the rate at which we're eliminating jobs. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be a rocky transition, but best believe, I think on the other side of this, we'll still be doing cool stuff it's just we'll be wielding these tools to create stuff at this much higher level of abstraction. I so, love the orchestra yeah, analogy. That was beautiful. Yeah. So, so if someone DMs you and say, hey, Bilava, I'm 14 years old now, you know, 13, 14, and mm. I don't know what to do. And I'm scared of all the changes that are happening. I'm afraid if I go to law school, whatever I learn is done by an AI tomorrow. Or if I go to 
business school or if I go to even I don't if know, I do 3D. Yeah. So yeah. how would you or advise computer science? Anything, yeah, right? anything. Anything. How would you advise someone who is 13 or 14? Like you can in, even go higher than that. You can go someone in like uh, like, like fin- trying to finish to college, yeah, like yeah, before yeah, going totally. to uni. Yeah. So, yeah. so how would you advise them and say what they should do in order to be on top of their game and make the most out of what is happening right now? You know, I, I do get this question a lot, especially from like people who are trying to be product managers mm-hmm. and they're just want to be a PM because that's like the cool thing to be. Oh, I don't want to be an engineer. I just mm-hmm. want to go be a PM. And honestly, it's like not, it's one of those like, I don't pretend to have some special advice here. My advice is just to go taste things. I think like it is easier in history today to taste things than ever before. Mm. Like just two years, like a year ago, we actually had to read books. Now you can go ask questions to a book, right? Like, isn't that crazy? Yeah. (laughs) There's this distillation of all human knowledge or at least documented human knowledge on the internet, which does include Reddit. So we can talk about how much (laughs) knowledge there is there, but you can query this well of expertise and try things, make things easily. Rather than like, just let's take the digital art example, like rather than spending months learning how to use a pressure sensitive Wacom tablet, getting a license for Procreate or Photoshop. Hey, why don't you just make some mid journey art? Just try making it. Is it fun? Does it like light up your soul? Is that the thing that like, is the thing you want to do? Even if you didn't get paid, I'm a big believer in just like finding your passions because that's the only way you'll be resilient to change. If you're doing things because that's the thing to do the moment it's like hard and the going gets tough, like the, you know, the tough gets going or whatever that Mm -hmm. saying is. I think like if you're passionate about something, the tools may change, the technologies may change, but then you're willing to adapt and kind of harness the new set of capabilities at your disposal. So I think like adaptability is going to be a skill that is very important in sort of this, like everyone talks about this, like asymptotic curve, like we're, we're about to hit like, you know, an immense amount of change very quickly. So I would say find your passions and the way you find your passions, you just go and taste stuff. Like dare I quote Gary V. Cause he just like goes overboard <laughs> with the, you got to make like 30 TikToks a day. You got to be hustling every single, no. Now you have the tools to just at least go taste stuff. Like even on like YouTube, if you want to learn about a certain profession, like rather than going and enrolling in some sort of a class or whatever, the likelihood is you could just go find a video that tells you what you need to do, or you could go mm-hmm. find a person that's doing exactly that. And you get to taste things. And then once you find the stuff that you're passionate about, go pursue that. And then the rest is just a means to an end. AI is like, if we're truly building a general intelligence, it is a tool for all sorts of things. So you got to find the thing that you want to do day in and day out, right? And that may be visual creation for you, certain types of visual creation that may be building software. If that's what you want to do, yo, you don't have to go to CS school anymore. You already didn't. That was already kind of getting outmoded as you saw a bunch of companies like sort of not making a, you know, bachelor's or master's degree mandatory. Mm. And now you pour gasoline on that. The joke (laughs) about like the best programming language to learn this year is English. I mean, that's absolutely (laughs) true. Like go learn English and like use Copilot and ChatGPT and make a product and launch it. And you are seeing people do this right on Twitter now, sort of the solopreneur hype. So that would be my advice, like find the passions and then use the technology and sort of these platforms at our disposal to discover them and taste them. You know, it's it's funny you brought that up because I, I believe it was your own tweet posted as a carousel on Instagram that you showed me yesterday that had a saying, I believe, whereas there's all these opportunities, but the problem also is 
canceling out the noise. Like there's so mm. much happening. I'm not sure if that was you, was it? You showed me a Twitter thread uh, posted as a carousel. Anyways, just I definitely said stuff like that. So. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So just about the concept of yes, now there's all these possibilities, but at the same time, there's just so much. Like where do you start? Like how how can you adapt so fast every single day? Now the reason I brought that up as well is mainly because I feel like a lot of people still don't know about all these AI technologies. A lot yeah. of people we speak to here in Vancouver still haven't used ChatGPT. Which that yeah. makes me really shocked. I thought, because, I mean, our Twitter feed, our Instagram feed is all about <laughs> AI because that's what we look at. So <laughs> yeah. my mentality is when I go out, when I go to gym, which, you know, the age group is bit somewhere between like 18 to 45, mostly. When I see someone in the streets, when I see someone in our lift, I assume they know about at least ChatGPT. Which is like the, the most famous and probably the one, the easiest to use, essentially. Yeah, right? that's the most like user-friendly. But we get so many, no, I don't know. Or no, I haven't tried it. Or should I try it? I haven't played with it. So that, that's like the whole education thing is really crazy about this thing and the awareness. Yeah. So what do you think about the adoptability of all of these AI technologies and agents? Because in our world, clearly it's, it's quite fast. But apparently for the rest of the population, which I'm assuming is around like 80% of the world, they still probably Maybe haven't more, even yeah. used AI once. Do you think, because it's definitely not matching like the actual use cases, is not matching the actual usage of what, what I'm seeing. What do you think about that? I think you're absolutely right. Like we, we definitely live in a bubble, right? Like, and it's this like sort of early adopter tech bubble online where everything's about like large language models and neural, radi neural radiance fields and all this other stuff. And I think this even applies at the highest levels of these these enterprises, right? Like if you think about just photogrammetry, most of the photogrammetry companies, the players that have been around for 15, 20 years, aren't thinking about nerfs right now. This is like this early new thing for them. And I think the same applies to large language models, right? It's like, it's it's A, good that the whole world is not using them because I don't think we have enough GPUs to like, <laughs> you know, to power all the queries right now. Certainly, you know, like uh, OpenAI is hitting scaling restrictions and like, it's funny at the end of the day, it's like Jensen that's just going laughing to the yeah. bank. Like, I just keep joking. It's like the dude could buy like 30 leather jackets per second now. It's like, good set. <laughs> just like, just like money's coming in. It's yeah. like, no matter how AI pans out, like, you know, homie set, NVIDIA's in a great position. Now, I think like, when will we see people adopting this? I think there's an interesting case study here with generative fill by Adobe. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, so ostensibly how I got really excited about like generative stuff was Dolly 2 in painting. Yeah. Uh, this is like, I want to say exact, a little over a year ago, maybe 13, 14 months ago, before the summer of AI really kicked off last year, mm -hmm. um, I was deep into nerfs at that point. And then I was like, oh, this generative stuff, I've seen some of the GAN instantiations. It always looks like this melty human. Yeah. It's going to suck. And then I used in painting to, to make some like, you know, mothership UFOs in a Oh plate. my God, I knew it. <laughs> and, and so it's like, of course, you know, it's like a, it's a very predictable. And so when I did that, I saw like, holy crap, it got the lighting right, the sun direction. Like, holy shit, the reflections look good. Like all the stuff that you would have done manually otherwise, right? With like HDRI lighting and just approximating stuff manually in like Maya or whatever. It, it kind of, the model was able to reason about it, or at least like give the illusion that it's reasoning about these things and produce a compelling end result. But man, like nobody really, like there was like a small number of creators that were making stuff with Dolly 2 in painting and we were all calling it in painting and AI. Fast forward a year, 
the de facto image editing software, Adobe Photoshop, right? Like, it's like, hey, we're, we got this new beta. It's called generative fill. Yeah. People are using it. It spawned entire categories of memes. I made a random video where I took like Tim, Tim Sweeney's like photo of a hike and just added like a dinosaur and like a bear drinking beer together. And like that got a million <laughs> views for some reason. And so like you're seeing people use it and adopt AI now, but without talking about it like AI. They're just like, hey, it's the cool new feature in Photoshop, the thing I already love. And I think the same is going to happen with ChatGPT-esque capabilities. Like, obviously, like, I'm a little biased, but I think, like, Google's going to crush it here. Like, it's mm -hmm. the biggest search engine. There's Gmail. Mm -hmm. There's Docs. Mm -hmm. All these things that a bunch of early adopters, even like me, are using Chrome extensions for, when mm -hmm. it's just in your tool and you're writing a doc and it gives you better autocomplete, or in Notion, like they've added the AI feature, yeah. I think people will start using and adopting AI, but it'll be in a way it's kind of transparent to them. They don't mm -hmm. care about what the underlying model is. It just like gets the job done for them. And I think we're at the very early days of that adoption curve, right? Like I think we got maybe even optimistically like three years before like everyone's kind of Mass heard adoption. about this thing. Yeah. Yeah, maybe longer. Who knows? It's, you know? I, actually, I, just, I just, one thing, sorry. When you brought... When you brought up the concept of memes with generative feel, have you guys seen the Pornhub memes? No. It's, like, I'm not even joking. Like, it's literally an image. I mean, it's nothing bad. It's just an image, probably like a thumbnail of what the porn thumbnail would oh, yeah. be, I guess. And, like, they do a generative feel to it. see what it, yeah, yeah. What it feels like. And it's like, they're just, like, dancing together with clothes on. And, like, that's probably the funniest generative feel memes I've seen. But that's awesome. One thing I think your point of view was really interesting. I had the same point of view about NFTs and Web3. The NFTs and Web3 will get mass adoption mm. when people use NFT without knowing they're using NFTs, mm. actually. 100%. So, yeah. so the same thing, I think what you brought up with AI is actually very, very true. Like what Adobe did with the generative field is yep. exactly the same moment that Oh, AI, what is AI? No, I'm just typing something and clicking a button and it happens. Oh, that's AI? Cool. Like it's like magic. It should just happen without you even fucking knowing yeah, so it. I, I believe that. Too. I think with every technology that applies, like pe people don't care about the terms. People don't care about the technology. People don't care how hard is it to do that thing. People just want to do things faster and yeah. easier. So the moment they achieve that, you know, mm -hmm. they will adopt it. Yeah, I, I generally agree with that as well. And you brought up Adobe. We were talking about this because like Adobe could have died out if they were just like, not giving a fuck it's so funny because like all these smaller companies were like yeah we have this cool technology photoshop we're doing all killer this. they were Boom, like photoshop was like yo we were doing this too by the way <laughs> if you didn't know and then they do it and now because like you mentioned photoshop has always been the go-to software for editing and now like i'm sorry but all the other smaller companies they're now just gonna have such a hard time because like people are already <laughs> used to photoshop that was the yeah. brilliant move. I hope every other company is trying to make. We made a switch to DaVinci Resolve recently, and Blackmagic has oh, their own I AI tools. Yeah, yeah, it's it, like they, they're amazing. And there's reasons why so many creators switch to DaVinci Resolve. But now I'm like, did I make the right fucking move? Because like Premiere Pro. I look like that meme that is looking yeah, like, at. What the hell, man? The, <laughs> yeah, Adobe, no, like, no. the guy, right? Just like fucking at the end of the totally. stadium. Like, dude, I like, just switched. I learned everything. And now, but I, I hope Blackmagic really brings AI. <laughs> but into. it's one thing. Even if Blackmagic does bring AI, it's like they will not have and never have access to the amount of, I guess, data, data yeah. that Adobe has access to because of their previous, you know, User Things, base. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The user base. And I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but the Adobe Firefly for video, like 
making your own sound effects, adding color grading, transcripting, all this stuff that is going to have AI integrated is going to make editing so much easier. But at the same time, you have people like Runway, ML, who are just trying to completely demolish the way we do editing. Just like type it in, bro. Like everything you want, just type <laughs> it in. We'll make it happen. It's going to be really crazy seeing all of this. It's like a tug of war, you know, like who's pulling, who's pulling. People who's going to win at the decision, end? No, no. Yeah. That's actually the exact right analogy. It's like it's like a tug of war. It's like uh, it, it's like the one one side of it is like, and then they're kind of converging towards each other. Mm-hmm. And this theme like kind of has happened. It, like you probably noticed this with like, you know, real time and offline rendering sort of went through this sort of phase where it's like initially they were so different, right? Like Unity and Unreal, but then they started getting more and more photorealistic and better and better and better. And same thing happened with like, you know, Redshift and Octane. It's like, okay, there was the days of RenderMan and Arnold and like nondescript warehouses of just like CPUs crunching like for days on a frame of video or something. And then slowly like, oh yeah, you got an NVIDIA GPU, you got some CUDA, like, okay, cool. Redshift Octane, way faster. You can do motion graphic stuff. And they start, the offline stuff started getting more real time. And so I think like, the, the the way these companies like the incumbent and then the the upstarts that are challenging their dominance or approaching mm-hmm. it is like the same thing. And the tug of war is a beautiful analogy. If I may like build on that a little bit, it's like it's like hey, I just want to bring out my popcorn, which is why it's so fun. <laughs> like to, right now, it's like because like we're sort of unbiased in this, right? We'll use the best yeah. tool for the yeah. job. There's nothing that locks us in. Though I do want to come back to Da Vinci. It's like. I'll come back to it later because, like, oh, Premiere is just so unstable sometimes. It just, like, <laughs> kills me. But it's, like, After Effects, I can't leave it. But Premiere is, like, uh, you know, people yeah. like Matt Wolf are, like, hey, man, Resolve's pretty good. Like, yeah. it just never crashes on you. Same thing with the Corridor folks. So, but to your tug of war, it's, like, Adobe is going to meet users where they are. They've got distribution. It's the same thing with Google, right? Like, they've got these surfaces, these billion user surfaces. And Adobe, I don't know what their exact Photoshop numbers are like, but I would assume they're at least tens of millions, if Mm -hmm. not hundreds of millions of users, right? And so, like, let's meet users where they are and infuse AI in a way that's transparent to them. Take advantage of distribution, brand awareness, all that. On the other hand, I think Runway can't do that, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. Runway has to reinvent how creation is done because if they just made another slightly modified version of after effects which is what it seemed like to me like i've been following runway from the start when it was more about like segmentation and green screen without a green screen and stuff like that it felt like a like replacement for after effects hey if you Mm -hmm. have lightweight compositing tasks or editing tasks do it here Mm -hmm. but now where they're going with gen one and gen two and sort of the generative models that started ostensibly with that latent diffusion paper Mm -hmm. right like i think it's super exciting to see what sort of paradigm emerges Mm-hmm. But that's the, I would say maybe the, the, the billion or trillion dollar question is like, what is that new creation paradigm? I'm not convinced it's text. I think mm-hmm. like that's a deeply unsatisfying way for me to work with this stuff. So I think maybe it'll be interesting to see sort of like another example is perhaps Descript and Premiere. And then you're mm-hmm. talking about Resolve too. Descript almost opens up editing to an entirely new audience, right? Like there's a class of people that will never learn Premiere or Resolve. Maybe yep. we're, we're in, we're, you know, we're into this stuff, but most people working at some company that want to make like a, you know, like, or even a solopreneur that wants to make package up their webinar or whatever, they're like, I can use docs and I know how to work in a deck. Okay. If mm-hmm. I can do that now, you can make a video with like, you know, with, with the amazing capabilities in Descript. So I think like that's, it, it opens up editing to a new class of users at the same time. Premiere obviously is like sort of giving you that sort of training wheel mode inside Mm -hmm. of premiere itself which is also interesting but i again think they'll always 
meet like target different audiences, right? Like somebody who's in, in, in descript. So in other words, it's a tug of war. And in another way, it's also an expansion of the pie. Like you're opening up these new forms of creation to an entirely new set of users that might have never bothered with this stuff. Now, I do think the web-based tool that Adobe's building for podcast editing and, and all that type of stuff is more directly competing with something like Descript. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited. Like I'm excited to have AI tools today because they fit in your workflow. But I'm also excited to see what are the net new workflows that emerge and like how that brings a bunch of people to create that weren't creating like... I mean, one of my friends on Twitter is like Heather. Heather's like, you know, like the mom of two in like Atlanta, you know, working on, you know, completely different stuff as her day job. And then she somehow got into AIR and has like 15K followers or 20K followers on Twitter now. It's like, I don't think that would have happened that quickly if not for AI. So Mm. it's going to be interesting to see sort of what the landscape looks like just in a couple of years from now. But yeah, I love that. Love that visual of sort of the... Uh, the the tug of war, if you will. Yeah, you see, the thing is, like you mentioned, Heather. We don't know Heather, but that's a great example to bring up. There's other people like Mr. Grateful, who using ChatGPT as an agent was able to achieve a mm. hundred thousand, you know, followers on Instagram. Whereas I would assume, wow. if it wasn't for ChatGPT, probably wouldn't be able to, yeah. or wouldn't have the motivation to. Right? It was totally. because of ChatGPT. He was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna make a challenge. And he started a new challenge, which is I'm gonna get a hundred thousand dollars in revenue. In revenue again using ChatGPT. Yeah, using ChatGPT, which to me it sounds crazy, but dude, he did hundred k in terms of followers, which is not an easy feat for a lot of people, especially on Instagram. Yeah, there yeah. you go. And he did it. And like, if he makes a hundred k, it just goes to show damn, you can actually do so much with all these AI agents that so many people are afraid of because they, they're afraid of losing, oh my goodness. Yo, I'm not, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, so we have our laptop open here and I just saw yeah. MetaHuman Animator as an update. So we're deeply into <laughs> MetaHumans and they just announced this new update that makes facial mocap like 10x better. And I just thought, cool. I was like, holy shit. Anyway, sorry about that. There you go. The virtual it's- podcast. You got to do it now. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it needs to be done. <laughs> it needs to be done, man. But essentially speaking, we believe that all these AI tools can help enhance everybody's life if we know how to use them. Now, I want us to come back to AI again, and we're going to, because I know a lot of people are interested in listening to your approaches and different things. But we want to take a step back and let's talk about something that was announced a few days ago, and that is nothing but the Apple Vision Pro headset. Uh-huh, so yes. you were doing the um, the review of the announcement, if you will, uh, while it was being announced. You had uh, a video sort of podcast with another friend of yours and we were watching some of the things you guys were talking about we also did our very own version as well and oh. i guess what i want to ask you as someone who's worked in google as someone who's been you know um extremely fascinated with the latest technology developments you watch the division pro announcement there's people who are optimistic about it there's people who are pessimistic about it we want to get your thoughts first of all what did you think apple did right that's the first question within that presentation. Gosh, I think Apple just like made VR cool to put it very bluntly, in my opinion. Like, okay, there's a, you know, I wouldn't give them like a 10 out of 10. I'd give them like eight and a half. Like there was definitely the scene with the dad with the headset on cooking (laughs) bacon and eggs for the daughter. I was like, 
<laughs> Only Apple's reality distortion field is such that they can be like, you know what? We expect people in the house to just have this on all day. It's your freaking kid's birthday. <laughs> you're sitting there with like a freaking you headset all on. Like, yeah, Timmy. Blow and out the candles, Timmy. Dude, it like, was what? the creepy smile the dad was giving as he was just like staring at them like this. I'm like, oh my God. I can't believe they actually did that. I agree. So yeah, you know, like a little rougher on the edges. I think they focus far more on like a solo experience. But in terms of what they did right... I think they finally made VR a good word, right? Like, I think for whatever reason, whether it was like the conflation with Web3, whether it was like Meta's rebranding, whether it was just like how people were feeling about social media and sort of technology that sort of pulls you away from the world, whatever the reason was, it sort of like petered out, like the investment in AR, VR, both, to be honest, kind of petered out. And so I think like Apple entering this new product category that ostensibly Zuck has been carrying, right? Like for a while um, with Quest really selling subsidized headset to just drive that sort of install base, I think makes this very interesting, right? Like, so now Google and Samsung are gonna come out with a headset. Obviously Zuck's got his like Quest 3 coming out mm -hmm. and the Pro already. And then you've got Apple in the play. Like, I think what Apple announced is like the Tesla Roadster. It's this mm -hmm. like really expensive, you know, cutting edge, like the amount of technology that they managed to squeeze into that device Crazy. is awe-inspiring to me. Like I've used almost every headset there is other than the Vision Pro. And like, I cannot wait to get my hands on it. And the fact that even jaded press that have tried all of that stuff, like tried it and they're having this sort of, oh, wow experience. I think just is like, just goes to show it's going to be an amazing device for developers to build on. Specifically because unlike every other device that uses these Qualcomm chips, They've got that split compute architecture. You've got this like M2 chip just for the developer. And then you've got these like 12 cameras and a bunch of other crazy sensors. And there's a dedicated R chip, R1 chip just to process that, which is awesome for developer experience because like, I don't have to worry about like my whole experience getting laggy because I'm hogging too much compute. And suddenly the slam tracking is slowing down or whatever. So I think this is like a really expensive sports car. It's great for AR VR developers that want to develop for the like model three version that will eventually follow. And at the same time for early adopters, I think the pitch is pretty interesting, which is, hey, if you want a massive media consumption device, like this is this is the way to do it. And we've sort of seen Apple like laying breadcrumbs towards this. I like to call it like Apple's focus is connecting living rooms. You know, even two WWDCs ago, I've been writing about this Apple stuff for a while. It's like Two WWDCs ago, they announced this thing called like SharePlay. So if you're on a FaceTime call, you can suddenly share a TikTok display or Apple TV. And if you have, you know, like AirPods, you get this spatial audio experience, sort of like if we're sitting in a room, we're talking about the virtual podcast, like, oh, your sound is coming like spatialized from where you might be sitting. Mm -hmm. And it was like, yo, that's the most overkill feature to announce if you're just like on a Zoom watching some media together. Like, why is yeah. Apple doing this? And obviously they're so patient. They've just been layering these capabilities brick by brick. And so now finally we're seeing like their sort of early adopter head kit, you know, headset, you know, kind of device hitting the market. Best believe they're not entering this, you know, product category if they don't have like N other devices. Like the specs for this was finalized in 2016 because hardware has just such crazy lead times. And so I'm like, they knew then that this premium device was the way to go. And the specs are beyond anything. The Vario, nothing else freaking comes close. So I'm super excited. They did that right. Now there's going to be metaverse is going to stop being a bad word, even though nobody, even though Apple doesn't even say metaverse, 
but it's it's going to revitalize investment in it because developers now have this new sort of ecosystem that's typically pretty lucrative when it comes to apples like app stores and ecosystems to build on so i think it's going to be a renaissance in ar vr and uh, I, I can't be more thrilled about it uh okay first of all we we had sort of the same feelings towards everything that Apple announced. We were more on the excited side of things, even though we did cool. see some you know, negative comments and socials, people still you know, calling it too expensive. The thing is we understand the pricing. Like You cannot yeah. have, what, 5,000 5, patents or 500 patents more than that? Like you, can have, you cannot have all these unique technologies built yeah. into this headset and have it be at 500 bucks, which is like the, 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 the new headset that's coming out by Meta. There's a clearly a difference here and like totally. you mentioned, this is going to be the first version for developers to start building. And then the other models, which are going to come at a cheaper price, probably with less specs, are going to come out uh, eventually. Now, one thing you brought up was social AR. So we come from a background. We used to create AR experiences uh, a cool. lot uh, for brands and for our clients. And I'm sure you working you know, in the same field of augmented reality, you know a lot of people who create social AR experiences for themselves for socials or for brands. Do you think that as someone who creates AR experiences or is into VR, they should be quickly making a switch into you know, creating for Vision Pro? Do you see that being the future and not social ARs? Or do you think, no, they will each have their place? Or no, this is going to take over what we you know, do right now. We, we essentially take our phone and you know, we, we, we have the AR experience. And the reason I ask that is because the software they're partnering with is Unity. And so a lot of yeah. AR experience. And Google AR is creators. using Unity too, right? Like Google is using yeah. Unity. So now there is this mindset of, okay, if I go and learn Unity, I can build for Apple Vision Pro. I can work on the Google AR kit as well at the same yeah. time. So what do you think about that? You know, it's like the way I break up AR experiences is into like front-facing and world-facing experiences. Right. And, and the vast majority of filters that still drive impressions, like I think it's like 80 or 90% of snaps Front AR facing. usage is always, yeah, like it's, it's like, you know, it's a personal messaging app. And I think mm -hmm. it's the same thing on like, you know, if you're developing example for Instagram, right? Like you go to story mode, usually you default opening up towards your face, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's self-expression. So I think that's not going to change. And I don't see the Apple headset like dabbling in that world, right? Like. In fact, I would actually criticize Apple here and say, like, I had such higher hopes for Reality Composer when it came out in 2017. Mm -hmm. Like, it kind of was cool. And, like, you could, like, you know, send each other USDZ files over, like, uh, iMessage and you could open them up. But they never really turned that into sort of like a lens experience, like a mm -hmm. Snapchat-style lens that you could easily share. Or it certainly never leaned into it. All that happened in these sort of walled gardens of Snapchat, you know, Facebook or Meta Suites, you know, Google stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think like that front facing stuff, given how, you know, we are self-expressive and, and care about ourselves and really like to take photos of ourselves. I don't see that changing. Now the world facing stuff has always been hard on mobile. You're, you know, you probably know this. It's like, you talked about the waving the phone. I call it doing the six off dance. It's like, Oh, you're <laughs> the now. okay, cool. Like, Oh, and you've got this like sort of, you know, if you, if we really want to put the marketing hyperbole on it, we could say the magic window experience, but it's a freaking tiny window, right? Yeah. The yeah. fact that that window is now on your face and that it is this crazy pass through device. There was this headset company that Apple acquired called Vervana, V-R-V-A-N-A, -A, that had a similar demo, like just really high quality pass through. 
combined with sort of like the updates they've got to their like mapping, like, uh, uh, you know, like, what is it called? I, I forget room, room capture API and their object capture API right. just like, it's going to be, it's going to turn the world into a much more immaculate canvas indoors. Mm -hmm. So I think what's going to happen is like, people are going to love creating world facing room scale experiences. And if you have those same shops in AR, I absolutely think you should be taking Apple seriously. Like maybe not for gen one. Cause like maybe they sell like millions of units, maybe tens of millions of units. I'd be surprised if it's more than that. And so mm -hmm. that's not exactly a massive, you know, addressable market to, you know, make a bunch of money. But again, we're talking about that's the iPhone pro we'll get the iPhone and the iPhone SE eventually. Mm -hmm. So you should get into this ecosystem for sure. But I kind of see like, self-expressive AR, especially given you have the headset and yes, there's ways to use neural avatars to like use the eye tracking data to like kind of, you know, unmask you. I love that feature, by the mm -hmm. way, like all the rumors were right. It's like, <laughs> I made this laundry list of, uh, of rumors with actually uh, another person who's Vancouver based Tobias Chen. And like all the rumors were absolutely freaking on point. So I think there's going to be a place for social media distribution with like you know, uh, you know, front facing like kind of AR and then the world facing stuff, I think we'll find a nice home at a place here, um, you know, in, in, in the, in the uh, Apple ecosystem, we may even see a throwback to remember when AR XR activations were super hot. Everyone yeah. was like, Oh yeah, let's go do place based, you know, this thing with the, there was like the, uh, what's the company Disney had, um, totally blanking on, uh, on the, they did a bunch of star Wars IP where you could like you know, basically experience this in a theme park right. format. I think we may see a resurgence of that, sort of these activations built around these headsets. But yeah, that's how I think it's going to pan out. It'll be just like a new canvas. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not going to impact perhaps the self-expressive, like, gosh, what are the most popular filters on TikTok? It's like the green screen filter. Yeah. You know, everyone wants yeah. to just green Snap screen. Snap is the one that turns you into an anime. <laughs> yeah. Know? Snap is usually like the, the really Disney complex character. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, it's funny totally. because when we were making... AR experiences, we would spend so long to making to make word experiences, you know, spend days. And the amount of impression and views it got, yeah. it was incomparable to those that we made in a day. It was mm -hmm. a face filter. So so it's like the effort and the impression, but what you said was right. Like people really like the self-expression more than yeah. AR experience. The self-expression is almost invariably the better the better filter when it comes to brand exposure. And that's totally. mainly because, like you mentioned, self-expression. Um what do you think about the whole Unity versus Unreal thing? So clearly, we missed out on this for some reason. We didn't fucking bring it up in our video. But afterwards, I was like, holy shit. I remember Apple and Unreal had beef over, you know, Fortnite at, at one point. What still do you think? Still do, of, yeah. Yeah, still yeah, do. The That's court the case still on, I think. Well, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's never going to be resolved the way they started the whole thing. But for anybody that doesn't know, essentially, Apple does take a 30% cut, I believe, on everything in the App Store. And Epic Games had issues with that specifically, with the way they were working with the, you know, Apple. Store. And Fortnite being the game that makes a shitload of money. I, I, I assume that's that's where the problem started. But I don't know the full details of how the court case went. I do know that... I Actually, there was 9 out of 10 cases Apple was not guilty and one they were apparently. Did just a little bit of research on that. But generally speaking, what do you think about their choice with going for Unity? And how do you think that's going to play out? Do you think Apple made the right move? Wait a minute. Are you team Unity or team Unreal, first of all? Honestly, both. I, okay. I kind of lean. I, I lean a little bit more Unreal, to be very honest okay. with you, just because I love the photorealism and like even with all the geospatial data, like it's just so much for 
easy and fun to get that stuff looking good mm-hmm. in, uh, in in Unreal Engine. And there's the whole virtual production angle that they le- leaned into. So I've always been a fan of Unreal. I think it's 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 not a surprise to anyone to know that like a vast majority of games that are mobile based on any app store are going to be unity based right mm-hmm. so it's very very popular amongst the apps that are actually making direct revenue for themselves and obviously giving that juicy 30% cut to <laughs> apple and so like so yeah i thought that was the elephant in the room like that's one of the things that i definitely wrote about is like look it's it's kind of did did unreal shoot themselves in the foot like or epic shoot themselves in the foot with this apple debacle i don't know i think like we'll see how that plays out maybe you'll still be able to develop for uh the the vision pro with unreal i suspect there will be a lot of triple a developers that are like yo my game's based on unreal like like i I need to have access to the low level functionality that they seem to be giving unity so it does seem unity got a pretty sweet deal like whatever the reality os or whatever the new term for it xr os whatever it is it does allow you like unity files are treated at this like this lower level primitive so you can Mm -hmm. get access to a lot of the system functionality and build richer experiences essentially right mm-hmm. so i think that's really good for unity i think it probably also stay save their t- stock price you know like uh so i i invested in in unity early and i was kind of disappointed with sort of how things were trending mm-hmm. and yeah like it was funny after the the after the event it was like apple was down two percent unity was up, it was up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. and it's like so I, I think it's gonna be great for unity developers it's obviously far more accessible to the average creator and developer, in my opinion, mm-hmm. than yeah. Unreal Engine. Maybe if you come from a 3D-ish background, yeah. it's a little bit easy. Like, oh yeah, you use Nuke or whatever. Maybe you like the new node-based workflow, but mm. C-sharp's easier than C++. It's yeah. it's harder to mess up in, in Unity than it is in, in Unreal. So I think like, look, those are the two big game engines. And it's mm. funny how the industry always ends up with this oligopoly sort of format. You end yeah. up like... It's like, what else is there? It's like, okay, yeah, you got Unity, Unreal, and there's Godot. Who the hell uses Godot? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I don't like maybe some like you know niche games use it, but like, yeah. So I think like they're gonna have to support Unreal to what level? I don't know. Maybe Unreal will be on the hook to build their own stuff. That's what if I had to speculate, yeah. I would assume that there's some sort of like a really nice deal between Unity and Unreal where they're working together to build this stuff mm-hmm. out. Whereas for Unreal, it may be more harm's length, but like. Unreal will still get enough pressure from developers to build on it. So yes. I wouldn't be worried is I guess what I'm saying that, oh gosh, like I actually had a creator uh, like Sam from so, you know, works on so crispy media. He, he did the, the, uh, uh, the video, the squid Mr. game Beast? video for Mr. Beast. Yeah. yeah. So that dude was like, yo man, like I, I've got the, all this stuff in unreal. Am I screwed? It's like, no, nah, I don't, I don't think so. It just might be a little bit harder to port. So yeah, all these like, you know, frenemy relationships as I like to call them, you know, these companies are friends in one way, enemies in other. It's like what a tangled web we weave, you know. So, you know, I, I who knows how that'll play out, but it does certainly seem like Unity got the better deal right now. Oh, so. 100%. Yeah. 100%. He nailed it though. Yeah. He you nailed it. Like the reason why a lot of people love Unreal is just the beauty and the photorealism that you can achieve, the real time. You got the nanite, the lumen. With Unity it's just like it's, it's easier to develop and it's it's more versatile. Yeah. And so we are not at all saying Unity was the wrong choice. Definitely is a, is a 
fascinating choice to go with. It's just we as Unreal people would have expected... Unreal people. Unreal people. (laughs) We would have loved to see Unreal there as well, but unfortunately we didn't. I did see a screenshot of Unreal having the the plugin for Vision Pro. Um, So you're definitely going to be able to develop for it. It's just like you're probably not going to get as much support as Unity will be getting along the way, which is... I think Unity will have a better pipeline and a workflow, so it's much easier to deploy. Which is always a great thing to have if you're trying to develop apps and and, and things like that. But uh, You know what's also funny related to this that you'll get a kick out of this is like, you know, did you see the uh, uh, freaking the dinosaur content that was showcased uh, with the reality? Yeah. It was one of the main demos and this is obviously like, you know, the who's who of like, you know, making these amazing, amazing, John Favreau et al. making this stuff. The Hans Zimmer soundtrack. I can't wait to watch that full length thing with Prehistoric Planet 2. But apparently the dinosaurs were rendered in Unity and I was like, wait, that's weird. Like, isn't John like a big Unreal guy given all the other movies that they've worked on? And I started digging into it. Apparently for Lion King, they had Unity. Wow. It was like the virtual production thing on set. Yeah, maybe that was just like, they built some proprietary pipeline. There's a company, Magnopus, that Ben mm-hmm. Grossman Academy Award winner that was involved there. So yeah, it's interesting that those dinosaur dinosaurs are like freaking in, in Unity. And also like, uh, uh, who's, the, who's the gentleman that directed District 9? Um, this oh, year, I, I remember that the, 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 the movie, right? That, like super old, a couple of years ago, right? Neil Blomkamp. He did a okay. bunch of stuff with unity too. That was more cinematic. So I guess you can like what a couple of my like unity purists were telling me, no, dude, you can get some really photorealistic results from, you know, unity as well. Have you checked X, Y, and Z out? And so I guess you can do that, but like, ah, let's be honest. It's easier in unreal right yeah. now yeah. anyway. So yeah. One, yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Since we are, on this topic, I want to talk to you about a recent obsession that we have found. So we discovered nerfs and we discovered that they yeah. could bring nerfs into Unreal Engine 5. And that has yeah. been a very costly hobby. So we had to buy a drone <laughs> to go and scan environments. And, and this has really changed. And like ever since, whoever we talk to, especially filmmakers, directors, people, even people from Hollywood, we are telling them that this is going to change the filmmaking industry. This is going to change the production industry. The reason is, with a small drone, a, a DJI Mini, uh, Pro 3. Mini Pro 3. Which is like, not, not that expensive. Not, you know, not that expensive, not that, you know, not the highest model. We could scan environments that are photorealistic, bring into Unreal Engine 5, add some filters and, you know, color grading. We could get an environment that it would take weeks, maybe even months to build in mm-hmm. just a matter of minutes. So it's Early. been crazy how things can change with nerves and you know Unreal Engine. And since you have worked a lot on nerves and I've seen video, you've been doing videos. What what do you think? Like if you are at this stage now, what do you what do you think is going to happen in the future? And I'm I'm so excited about neural radiance fields and just generally how I think of it is like reality capture, right? Because mm. this technology isn't new, right? Like photogrammetry has been a thing since the 1800s, to be honest. Like it, this is like people were flying, putting cameras, film cameras on kites and doing like manual triangulation math to mm. like, you know, create some really, especially in geospatial and all this other stuff. Obviously, I think like we saw this wave, the first wave of what you just described happened with like games like Battlefront and, you know, Star Wars Battlefront and Call of Duty, where to your points, like, would you want to create these like sort of complex virtual worlds? You know, it was easier for people to go like, they, you know, for Battlefront, they went to all these 
like locations where the Star Wars movies were filmed, right? Like Andor, like all the forest scenes and all that stuff and just scan the crap out of everything. So we had this sort of like perfect confluence of like sensors getting better, like mm -hmm. mirrorless Sony cameras, like a, a, a 7R series, like 50 megapixels, like, oh my God. Like, then that's been around for like six or seven years now. And it's the same thing then, like, you saw this crap, like, this crop of, uh, sorry, uh, this <laughs> crop of <photogrammetry laughs> It's like, I mean, I'll photogram, she isn't perfect. Yeah. Maybe that's a Freudian slip. Uh, but, but not to jump ahead of myself, like, these cameras got better, so people could go, like, capture, even for Call of Duty, hey, let's just go scan stuff in the freaking, like, in a nondescript parking lot in Los Angeles and use that to kitbash and populate the complexity in a scene, right? So like this idea of digitizing reality and then sort of kitbashing, it started with photogrammetry. And obviously the output of photogrammetry was just like in many ways closer to what engines could deal with because it's just a triangulated mesh. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it had all these problems that nerfs have today that I think will get solved also, which is like you end up with this like, crappy looking texture atlas mm. and you usually have to retopologize it and blah 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 yeah. and do all this stuff to it but you started seeing that in like triple a games and then suddenly you saw like a bunch of these blender artists doing the same thing with photo scanning and projection mapping like I, i'm blanking on the gentleman's name right now but he created this like sci-fi like futuristic dystopian tokyo yeah. world ian he be ian hubert yeah and like a couple years ago just using like reality capture or agisoft meta shape combined with basic projection mapping of the plate to create these like set extensions and complete scenes that just like to me was like yo this took like weta digital and ilm mm. and an army of people and like a solo artist can do this now i think nerfs added on to photogrammetry by allowing us to capture a lot more of the complexity of reality that photogrammetry sucks with right like so photogrammetry uses multi-view stereo you compute these depth maps and like you know and then you do like all sorts of stuff like some sort of poisson meshing to create continuous surfaces but what do you do with reflections and refractions what do you do with transparent surfaces what do you deal with like really thin ornate structures all these things would be like sort of failure cases for photogrammetry and like this this line of like essentially pseudo light field style research you know, with, you know, local light field fusion, the deep view paper, and then the, you know, really, really seminal nerf paper sort of brought that like volumetric light field quality to reality capture at some semblance of scale. Right. And I think like really the moment of scale happened last year when it's like, I remember in January I was playing with nerfs and like you had to use MIP nerf and it like took like 12 hours to train on a TPU. And then NVIDIA came out with instant NGP. And suddenly on my freaking home, home machine, you could train a freaking nerf in like a minute. Like that just, whoa, like yeah. blew my mind. And then Luma, you can do it on your phone, right? And hit a button, it's yeah. doing it in the cloud and hit another button, you got a video. And so I think like the ability for nerfs right now to capture more of the complexity of a, of a set, like is really good for all the use cases you brought up, right? If you want a virtual set digitized, Nerfs are the way to do it right now. Maybe you still capture the photogrammetry so you have like continuous surfaces or whatever. You derive it from the nerf, you know, kind of uh, scan through various techniques or just like exporting it out of Luma as like a OBJ or PLY or whatever. But there's still some stuff where it falls sh short, right? So to your answer to where do I see this going, I think it's all going to be about dynamic nerfs, right? Like, so right now we're really, really good at static capture. Let's assume the world is static. That's kind of how photogrammetry works best. And now you're seeing that with nerfs. You're seeing some really cool things happening 
with what if you start imbuing semantic understanding into each voxel so you can classify each voxel. So if you wanted to just type a text prompt to delete a bunch of crap from your scene, boom, you can do that. And then you use generative models to sort of fill in the holes, right? So I think this sort of where we're going, we're seeing this beautiful unification and you'll see a bunch of papers like this at CVPR, which is coming up in, uh, in, in, in Canada, actually. You're you're cooler, there, yeah. You Are you going to be there? Yeah, if you're not. No, I'm not. Unfortunately, I'm going to be stuck working on a Maven course, but I'll be at SIGGRAPH. <laughs> so if you'll be at SIGGRAPH in LA, I'll see you there. But you'll see a bunch of these nerf papers around sort of 4D nerfs, but mm. also about how do you take like incomplete captures of the world and sort of fill in the holes yourself, right? Like you mentioned, it's an expensive hobby. What if you could just walk around at ground level with the capture that you need because you've got the micro detail well, the macro detail already exists, you know, in data sets like Google Maps has, or Apple Maps has, or Microsoft has, or a myriad of other aerial imagery providers. And so then, like, could we auto-complete your scan with a model that's sort of seen the diversity of everything that's in stable diffusion, for example, but has also imaged the world from every possible angle? So those are the directions it's going, and, and like... Like really for all the stuff you and I care about too, like it's like people, places, and things. We need all three, right? So yeah. we're doing really good on pl places and objects. We need people. So I think this line of 4D nerf research on like how do you capture a full body volume of somebody and then animate it, like not doing the meta human thing, which is like this explicitly modeled thing that you're driving, but sort of as this neural representation is also very, very exciting to me. So I think we'll keep seeing people push on that, on those fronts of like, just like, how do you start doing 4D captures of like video essentially? And then how do you start making it easy to autocomplete stuff, edit and transform these nerfs in sort of a native format? And then finally, how the hell do we deal with humans, right? And maybe what Apple showed is a hint of that. Like they, whatever avatar they made looked very neural generated, didn't look yeah. like yeah. a explicit volume. It's similar to some of the research that uh, uh, Meta has with something called codec avatars. So yeah, those, those are my pontifications on like sort of reality capture and the nerf era and sort of where stuff is going. It's gonna be, it's gonna be pretty exciting for sure. I'm, I'm gonna clip this and send it to Luma. Oh and I would say this is our God. feature request for the upcoming six months. Dude, <laughs> what you just described is my wet dream like i'm not even <laughs> joking just just imagining because right now luma ai does have the capability of recreating your environment essentially what it does is instead of cropping out exactly what you scan it adds like a globe sort of look to it as you bring it into totally. unreal engine 5 which makes it look less janky right the edges of your uh, of your scan which it's fair because you didn't even scan that part of the sky if you were outside but it, of course, doesn't really do a generative fill. It's not actually creating clouds or a sky based on your scan. So now just imagining when that happens, it's going to be so fun. And this is the best part. Like, we're always looking at people complaining about how AI is taking away stuff. And like, should I learn sculpting? Because like sculpting might go away. Should I learn this? This might go away. And we're like, yeah. the one thing I know that is not going away is digitize, digitizing the physical. Like you mentioned, like we're always going to have this physical world, at least in our lifetime, I assume, unless it's like a World War Three or something. Uh, but <laughs> we're always going to have this physical Say world. Say thoughts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just, just saying. We're always going to have this physical world and it's always going to be a human 
passion to go out hiking, to go out running. And when you do, just grab your camera with you, your phone. That's going to be enough. And you can essentially capture anything, bring it back home and turn it into a magical world by using generative fill and, and, and all of that, which is what excites me because like no matter how much the technology improves and how good they get, you can still do this. And people will still love it because it's based off the real world and the real world is extremely complex and the patterns totally. that exist in nature is extremely complex to try to model again. So you have that plus AI and you can create fascinating things, which is why majority of our content right now is nerf related because <laughs> we genuinely believe this is going to be huge in music videos, in virtual production, in film, you know, in, 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 in a lot of different use cases. And so we're like heavily invested in like using these technologies. So far, we're only using Luma AI, but you, you use NVIDIA's instant, instant nerf. Is that, is that right? Most of the time? I or use have you all tried? of them, honestly. Okay. Yeah. I would say like it, the, uh, you can like, so instant NGP is awesome. Nerf studio is awesome too. Although I don't know what the future of nerf studios development looks like. I think there may be some, uh, it may continue as an open source tool um, and and perhaps get funded by a couple of players in the space. But, dude, I mean, like, it's the way I think about it is just like a tool for the job, right? Like, the, what Luma excels at is just like, I love their web UI. It's so clean. Like, the keyframe editor, I still find it if I'm making a fly through animation. I still love the instant NGP one more. So, mm -hmm. often, how I like to use it is like, instant NGP is the will it nerf question because I can train mm -hmm. a nerf in a minute and it tells me. And then when I know I want this thing and I want to do a bunch of artifacts and export it in different places, then I love to use Luma. If I'm out and about capturing something with my phone, Luma all the way. At the same time, like if you want to go get the highest quality nerf output, you really want to get like MIP nerf 360 and get rid of all the floaters. And if you notice, like Luma has this like meshy quality to it. It looks yeah. a little bit more solid at times than uh, Instant NGP, which has sort of this sort of hazy, like kind of more volumetric quality to it. I've tried to ask him and I'm like, is it like some hybrid representation? He's like, no, it's a native nerf. Like, all right, <laughs> I guess it's a native nerf. But uh, like, yeah, so I think like they're all freaking awesome. And uh, yes, I, I see like Luma is just such a great accessible way to play mm -hmm. with this stuff because you don't have to like, you know, just deal with command line and stuff, you know, which not a lot of people don't want to do. You, you just posted a video, I think, oh, was it a few weeks ago, a few days ago, was it an Indian, I think, was it a temple that you changed into a Minecraft? That was a couple of months oh, yeah. ago. I think that was back in yeah, yeah. March. Though. No, but there were two versions. I think one was yeah, six yeah. months ago, and version. then you redid yeah. it. Yeah. So so I, I want to know, the the, redid, the the recent version, what was your pipeline to do all of this? So you captured the environment first. Was it with your GoPro or like how, how did right, you do yeah. that? It's very Can you simple. walk us through I that? Because wanna... it, it looked really sick. Yeah. It looked really sick. For sure. Yeah, it's a pretty simple workflow. It's like vacation footage, GoPro, just sort of at like chest length, walking through on a path. Um, nothing too fancy, to be honest. And then I created a nerf that followed that exact sort of trajectory. And so then there's two ways you can reskin it. Like uh, the last video that you saw, I was just doing basic stable diffusion image to image. And so, you know, this is before control net came out. I don't know how, how deep y'all have gone into control nets. Mm -hmm. um, I, haven't, I haven't used control net. No, yeah. so uh, you might actually love it especially if you're doing nerfs like i think you you should make that a part of your workflow it's like uh so image to image is chaotic it's like it basically mm -hmm. takes a takes your image as a basis you know so how diffusion models work is they denoise your image so when you provide an image it kind of blurs the image approximately and then sort of uses that as a basis to refine it and then adds all this mm -hmm. detail but the problem is there's no temporal consistency 
it'll just like every image is unique. The way it blurs and denoises every image can be different. Even if you try to like solidify your seed and change some of the variables, it'll look like this jittery sort of fever dream mess, mm -hmm. which a lot of people love. Now, control net based tools like Kyber AI is a really good one if you want to just experiment with this stuff in a web UI, or if you just use the automatic 1111 tools. I use both. They're both great. One give you one, just like we're talking about Luma versus like Instant NGP or Nerf Studio, once one gives you more control and takes a little bit longer, the other one's good for like, let me just throw something at this yeah. and get something back. So you make the video, you make the fly through. With Luma, you can export out the depth map too. So you mm -hmm. know this, right? Like yeah, yeah, the same yeah. video. And then if you throw it into these tools and you don't always need the depth map too, you could just take the video. Control net basically, either if you give it a depth map, it'll use the depth map that you provided or mm -hmm. it'll hallucinate and approximate a depth map using Midas depth estimation, which is this like really awesome Intel-based depth estimator that creates pretty amazing results. And then it'll use that depth map and then edge maps. It'll extract edge maps from the video too to sort of guide the image diffusion process, the, the image generation process. And so that way you get far more temporal coherence. And like mm -hmm. that combination of like depth map to tell the model, hey, from this camera viewpoint, here's all the structure in the scene, right? Like mm -hmm. that's awesome. But then you have flat surfaces, right? There's no depth detail on where the windows are and the edges and the crevices. That all gets encapsulated by the like canny or HED, HED map, whatever you use. They're different control net methods. And so when you put into something like Kyber, it does depth, it does canny, and basically get, lets you give a text prompt to reskin that video. And it's like so much fun. It's like almost feels like reskinning reality. And if you want to take that a step further, you know, kind of uh, off the nerf thing we were just talking about, I pulled this up while you were talking about what, you, what your wet dream about nerfs is. Is uh, if you look at this tweet, you can check it out later. It's the same thing applied to nerfs in this iterative fashion. So it's not just applied to the 2D output, maybe mm -hmm. in a 3D aware way. It's like applied to the nerf volume itself. It's sort of like a way of brute forcing, uh, gradually, like incrementally restyling all the input images and then making mm -hmm. a nerf from that. So if you want to say make it snowing, you can do that. And it, like you get a native nerf at the end of it. So a little bit brute force and compute heavy, but works. But to go so back to you, that, yeah, it's a control. Yeah, go for it. Sorry, did you, did you use a text prompt to basically change the images or use an image reference or you can do both? You could do both. So if you use okay. Gen 1 to do this stuff and it follows a similar process, Gen yeah. 1 also creates a depth map and uses that for temporal coherence with some other things. You, I, in Gen 1, I like to provide uh, image prompts a lot reference. more. Yeah. But in, uh, in Kyber control nets, oh gosh, just text prompts. Like it's just... You okay. know, so iterating and getting the right Minecraft one. And it just looks magical. It's like, it's kind of wild to me. And then uh, I tried doing the reverse also. It took like Minecraft video and turned it into reality, which is also like really Did that fun. Work? It's like, it worked really well. Like Gosh. it's kind of surprising. Yeah, it's, it's on my Twitter. Check it out. It's like, it's like basically like, and then I suddenly think of all the kids, right? Like that are growing up today that are working in Minecraft. Like they know a 3D tool. It's like Minecraft. Mm. They literally yeah. build worlds in it. And some of these kids are crazy. They're pulling in like Google Earth data and like creating entire cities. But even if you know how to model with voxels, you can now like artificially up it, you know, to like yep. be photo oh, I saw the and meme so, like, you posted about the Minecraft builder, then the metaverse architect. Yeah, you know, the two. <laughs> yeah that's the one. Totally. <laughs> 
that's that's gonna happen that. yeah that, that's definitely that's gonna happen like i i you, really y'all are minecraft metaverse builders too like like i saw some of the videos y'all are making with the like the drone scan you did and getting the characters going in like yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's the future like that is that is the future what is your first of all thank you for sharing your workflow pipeline what is your definition of the metaverse because clearly mark zuckerberg and and apple all these different you know companies and people they have different views. Even even Tim Sweeney has a different view of what the metaverse looks like. What is your view of what the metaverse looks like? Yeah, it's like, oh my God, this word is so loaded. It's like the way I, I, the, the, I, I think of it very simply. I think of it like the spiritual successor to the 2D mobile internet we know today, right? It's, it's, it, is, it is essentially like it mirrors the physical world that we embody in just a far more natural fashion. So I love the term that Apple has given to this, which I've been using since like 2016, at least, which is spatial computing and spatial media, right? Like it embodies the spaces and places we care about in a, in a more like three-dimensional way, but also us, right? Like metahumans and avatars. And mm-hmm. so to me, the metaverse is basically like, you know, everything since Xerox Park on to now even on the iPhone and mobile era has just been rectangles, stacked rectangles on a screen. And like, obviously the world we inhabit every single day, like is dimensional. You see a doorknob, you know how to open it. You look at a person, you want to shake their hand. You know how to make eye contact, how to like navigate a grocery store. Architects have been sort of the original metaverse architects in a way, right? Because they've Mm -hmm. been conjuring up these dimensional spaces that we know how to navigate and get around in. Hey, some malls harder to navigate than others, sure. But like they've been doing that. So I just view the metaverse as like a spatial embodiment of computing, right? Where computing just reflects us back in this more dimensional spatial first fashion. But it's not just spatial. It's also language. And I think that's where like I don't think AR VR took off because the dream and the vision of creating more intuitive computing was always there, but we always knew we wanted some sort of like Jarvis style interface to talk to, right? A person, an embodied agent that helps us with stuff. And I think we're seeing that happening with this wave of like large language models and now these multimodal like large language models. I think it's going to be very, very exciting. So AR is going to replace mobile. I think VR as a form factor is going to replace desktop, this sort of experience. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all additive. Then as far as decentralization goes, I think whether it's centralized or decentralized, that's orthogonal in my mind to the metaverse definition. I think the world we live in today is largely centralized around a few players. I wouldn't be surprised if that continues to be the case. I also wouldn't be surprised if we see a pretty large decentralized social network, computing platform, distribution platform emerge as well. So it's my take on the so-called metaverse. No, I love that. We share we share sort of the same mindset when it comes to the metaverse. Definitely, it has to get closer to the way we interact with the physical world today. And and it's clearly not there yet. And and which is why I believe so many people were thrown off by it because in in the web3 space people were saying, "Oh, it's already here." But I I still think we're still far away from it. If if yeah, so that that's even even the it's Vision like Pro AR. headset is not even out yet. They're like next year we'll release this headset. So it's still going to be far away, but it's it's definitely going towards that direction and we we see that as well. I have I By have the way, I can go here. another 30 oh. minutes just to, oh, just a heads up. Perfect, so amazing. Good. Thank I'm, you for letting yeah. us know. 
you have experiment you have been experimenting with a lot of new tools just the names that you know came out of this podcast i think i can list out 20 or 25 and then if i go on to your twitter i can get another probably 10 or 20 150 yeah. i would yeah. say <laughs> <laughs> it's it's i mean we are trying to catch up with all these new tools and honestly sometimes we just can't we just can't try everything where do you get all this information like where do honestly, you get honestly that is yeah. like it's like drinking from the fire hose, man. Like I, it is, it is, I think this is a full-time job just to keep up to date with all the stuff that's happening, learning and building stuff with it. There is almost too much. And I feel like I've only scratched the surface. I feel like there's 20% of like the landscape that I can reasonably, you know, put my eyes and attention on. And then there's so much happening just in the text LLM space, for example, that I rely on other folks like me. And so I would say like, it's like, Dude, it's like what we're doing right now. It's conversations like this. It's like Twitter spaces. Dare I say it's people's newsletters that are just helping me mm. sort of keep up to date on all the other stuff. Because I think the magic is always at the intersection of these things. But like, look, the FOMO is also crazy high, right? Like you talked about sort of like you alluded to this earlier with social media and like too much, you know, kind of this like sort of anxiety of like, there being almost too much. And I think that's only going to get worse from here, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, that's maybe the carousel that you were alluding to. It's like, there's going to be new things coming out every one to three months for the, at least the next two to three years, if not longer. I truly believe that. And then like when people, even in like, even reputable researchers say stuff like, oh yeah, at some point AI is going to be making AI. I'm like, oh my God, we're so, it's like, it's like, <laughs> it's, like it's, it's done. Like we almost need our own AI agents scouring the web based on our interests sort of giving us our, you know, like newsletter summary. And so like, I, I think that's maybe how we'll make sense of this all, but like, we can't do it all. So like, again, like the things I'm passionate about is like blending reality and imagination. I'm more passionate about visual creation, not going as deep into all the audio models that are out there. There are other people who are doing a really good job of that. So they give me sort of the distillation. So I got to say my addiction has been Twitter in all of this, like say what you will about the platform. Like, I almost have like stopped posting TikTok videos. Like oh, I need to get back on that and just like push my account over a million. It's almost there. And <laughs> yep, so like, yeah, we see I, that. I, and so I got to do that. But again, like TikTok has been my obsession for the last like three months and that shows in my growth. Like three months ago, I had like two or 3000 followers. And now I think I'm at 35 ish K or something wow, like that. Wow. And so that's been fun. And I want to keep pushing there. One conquest that's always eluded me is Instagram, by the way. I just like have failed to do it. I actually <laughs> often ask him, it's like, Kim, how do you do it? Like, what, what do I do? It's just, I'm trying. It, it, it's like, yo, it's, just like. It's funny how yeah, different yeah. all these platforms are. Like what you mentioned about oh, Twitter and TikTok. Yeah. And, it, and we have the exact, I would say, opposite problem here because our Instagram is going well, whereas our Twitter is suffering. Yeah. I mean, suffering as in that we like I it's think, just a different way to deliver the same value you're trying message, to deliver right like yeah so so it's, it's really crazy you have to contextualize for every single social media platform when you are creating content for it or maybe an ai agent will do that for you <laughs> down the line yes. right yeah you talk totally. about what you want to talk about the ai agents one for instagram one for twitter one for you know tiktok will package it up in the best way possible and send it out and that way it will work I love that. I mean, it's such a good point. I think those are the aspects of AI that we underestimate. We're like, oh my God, you know, it's like the South Park, you know, I mean, everyone goes back to the, our jobs are going to be taken, but it's like, these are the aspects of creation that are, it's like mundane drudgery of like hmm. taking that video, chopping it up, turning it into a thread, all this stuff that's really just 
like transforming media and kind of pruning mm-hmm. it down that I think, you know, it, hopefully creators mental health improve with that. But I think there's even to that, that could be potentially be a dark side, right? This is like where I got to go back to Mr. Gary V. It's like, you know, so like Gary V is like, you got to do 10 TikToks a day, right? Like, it's like, I'm like, homie, I do like one a week, you know, like you only <laughs> do 10 a day. Like, what do you mean? Like, I can't even imagine, like maybe you, if you have a team, of a, a bunch of people. By the way, I'm looking for editors. So off the off thread, I'd love if you know. If anyone, anybody's watching good. and is looking for it, you know who to call. Yeah, yo, exactly. And you want to like speed run the AI creation stack? I'll give you that. You help me with some spicy edits, it'll be magic. But to like the dark side of this could be if our efficiency as creators go up, right? Like the expectation might be for creators like us to blow up on a platform, we got to do a hundred pieces of content a day because like mm. sort of the floor rises, right? It's it's not just the ceiling of like, you know, awesome content you can do that a studio can output the rival like of, of a Marvel and Marvel can set new standards. I think the floor might, might start rising too. And I think I definitely worry about that. And, and, and like sort of we as creators need to make sure that we take advantage of automation to live a freaking better life than mm. not just create another treadmill of our own design where we just slowly mm. keep like mm. increasing the speed, increasing the speed. And it's like, you know, the frog that got boiled. If you want to bo- boil a frog, just do it very slowly. It just happens. Yeah. And then next thing you know, you know before you, you, you know frog, it. So. And so, I, yeah. Farad, sorry, you want to say Yeah, that? because we are in this topic, I'm going to reread one of uh, Bilal's tweet mm. where you talked about the evolution of the content creation, yeah. how YouTubers had to learn so many things, you know, light, audio, editing. Thumbnails. Thumbnails, you know, so many oh, things that, you know, different sounds. Like when we create YouTube videos, Farad is editing DaVinci Resolve. I'm making a thumbnail. Then I'm doing subtitles in CapCut. You know, like we are using multiple softwares to do that. And then there is TikTok where you mentioned in, on your tweet that you can make everything in a single app. Music is there. You know, subtitle is there. Title is there. You can even, you know, split screen, green screen, do whatever you want. And you make few of them in a single day. And now the next stage is generative AI. How do you see this evolution is going to impact the content creator? So we talked about consumption. Yes, there will be a lot of it, but it, like you are a content creative, you are a content creator. How is it going to change for all of us with all these AI tools that are coming out? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a really good prompt, right? Like I think TikTok turned that sort of the creator stack that you needed into this single application, right? And if you just combine it with CapCut, like, which oh, has yeah. even more advanced stuff. They almost, I, I love what the ByteDance product teams are doing. They've got this awesome pipeline there between the advanced stuff from CapCut eventually graduates into TikTok. Like they almost test stuff there and then it pops in there. And it's amazing, right? You're using Resolve, but it's still, you're using like CapCut to do titling because it's easier. You, the motion graphics yeah. look better. It looks more polished. It's faster. The transcription is amazing. Like, so it's- And it's also, it's sorry super, to cut you off. It's also yeah, one please. more thing. It's about psychology as well. So people are now used to like the way CapCut videos look. Like, let's say there's a specific ty- way of doing subtitles. Like the psychology of me seeing those types of sub- subtitles if they're made in CapCut, like I, I prefer to watch those videos. Subtitles is just one example, but like people's psychology totally. also changes and the way they consume and the, the things they pay, pay attention to. But sorry to cut you off. Totally. Oh, it's a beautiful point. And the preferences change too, right? Like now you see a bunch of like the classic chopped video vertical with the yellow text, mm. right? Like that's become the aesthetic du jour and that'll evolve. Mm. But to like, how will this change the mobile creation? I think the phone will turn into a studio in your pocket. It already is in many ways. 
it'll become even more of that, right? Like, so I think, again, it speaks volumes that the most popular effect on TikTok is the green screen filter. Like it is this flexible tool, right? It's a flexible tool for a creator, whether you're like a business savvy, like one of a bunch of the AI creators, like Rachel Woods, you can like take a screenshot of something, pinch yourself down. Now suddenly you're doing picture in picture in a presentation. You can use it like that. If you're a comedian, you could be like, going to Google image search and find a bunch of backgrounds and you create a virtual sets, right? Like instead of doing a nerf, you just like go into street view or you're going and grabbing a photo from like image search and that's your virtual set. So this one primitive turns into these things that otherwise needed a studio or like chroma key. And then you're doing all this other crap, right? Like, so I think that'll only get supercharged with generative stuff, right? Like the ability to do this sort of video to video filter stuff that we're talking about, granted some of the things we talked about have nerf as an input, but video as an input, just as well works, right? Like, so I think like all that stuff is just gonna get supercharged. The ability to create virtual sets, to create virtual humans, to hold props, and to also be able to like, sort of create these more dynamic virtual camera moves, all with the 4D nerf stuff that I mentioned is all on the horizon. And so like, I kind of view it like, if you want to create like short form, like 60 minute, 60 second or less type content, more and more people will be able to do that in an app. Just like I mentioned, Descript sort of opened up video editing for a new audience of creators. I think like these like these effects, these type of effects will get opened up to another audience of creators. And like, you know, TikTok, it's like the, these trends sort of pop up and they take on a life of their own. I remember when the clone filter effect came out. This is right when the Raid Area 51 thing was happening. Mm. And everyone's talking about World War Three is going to start. It was like Raid Area 51 and then World War Three. It's like. Oh my God, society. <laughs> and it's like, everyone was like pretending to be like an army, right? Like with their like yeah, multi-clone yeah, yeah. effect and yeah. using it as an effect, right? So you never know the ways people will use this stuff, but the fact that platforms like TikTok and now YouTube's gonna, and YouTube's publicly said they're investing in generative AI effects, obviously Meta is gonna do it too. We're just gonna see this kind of crazy feedback loop that doesn't exist or is much slower of a feedback loop in the way you and I create content where we're doing this thing, we put it on, you know, it gets views and we figure it out versus I just made the thing, I put it on there and somebody's like, I like this. I want to use the same primitives that you came up with and sort of remix it, kind of playing Photoshop tennis, if you will, if you remember mm. that trend on Reddit yeah. where you could post an image and people would additively add to it, right? So it's going to turn into full-blown movie studio. And I think short form stuff more and more will be made natively inside these applications. But at the same time, given that they're such crazy, like, there's this arms race of generative AI happening. I think we'll also see people applying sort of the virtual production model uh, that sort of lives in parallel to that. But I think in terms of product metrics of how most content will be created, it'll probably just be an app because you'll have no reason to like, you know, like nobody's going to, who who uses like Adobe's, what is their like uh, mobile editing app called Rush? Uh, Rush. Who the hell Rush. uses yeah, Adobe yeah. Rush? Nobody uses <laughs> it. No way, man. No, no, no way. No, no, no. No, because it's, it's either CapCut. you're in DaVinci yeah, and Premiere or you're yeah. in CapCut. Yeah, that makes sense. Exactly. Right. And so CapCut's interesting because they're on desktop now too, right? So like, yes. yeah. so it's again, that same tug of war sort of confluence, like people coming from two angles coming together, but I'm excited to what a, what a time to be a kid today with bold ideas. Like, 
You know, I, I look back at my like crappy showreel with the like the crappy stuff. Like it's like literally clothes <laughs> clothes drying on a freaking like string on the roof, and like we're playing with lightsabers and this like shitty 3ds Max render of a thing is going down. <laughs> now a kid today, you got a 4K camera in your pocket, you've got AI agents working at your behest, and you're basically able to like chop up and do what required a mini YouTube team. And you can do that with a phone in your pocket. So what a time to be alive. And that'll only get more exciting in the future. I want to finish off by one last thing. And I want this, it's not necessarily just a question towards you, but it's a question towards all three of us and perhaps everybody yeah. watching in the comments. I'm going to start by saying it myself and answering it. I want to talk about what are we most excited about with all of these technologies. And we did talk a little bit about Vision Pro and Nerve. So I'm talking a bit, you know, maybe more than just that. Um, personally, what I'm excited about is something I think I read in the comments where you can use AI to train it essentially based on all the content as a content creator that you've uploaded and your audience. And right before you upload a video, you can test to see how that video will perform, essentially based on the audience that you have and all your previous videos. So I'm excited because sometimes we even think about thumbnails. You're like, we don't know which thumbnail works. Well, if you have the AI, we'll do like a testing and the AI will tell you based on your previous results and based on everybody else's thumbnails, this is going to work better. This is going to have more click-through rate. So I'm excited personally about that technology. I think I want to see that coming soon. What about you guys? Uh, maybe you want to go first? You know, I'm, I'm less excited about a technology and more about how they come together. And the thing I'm excited about is, is building on what you said, to be honest, it's like, I alluded to this notion of us being able to author content at this higher level of abstraction with these agents, with mm. these tools, with these models, with these superpowers or whatever you want to want to call it. And I think to your point about being able to like create variations of content and A-B test stuff, like I, I was talking to the Premiere and After Effects PMs about exactly this, where they were talking about Mogurts, if you are familiar with that feature in, uh, in After Effects, where you can create mm. templates of text, like text motion graphics. And then in mm. Premiere or with a CSV file, you can dynamically update the copy, right? If you think about right. anyone creating these shorts for like, you know, 30 different languages, like how much of a pain in the ass it is to do that stuff manually, or you're creating an ad creative that needs to go and like, you know, sort of hit five different markets, for example, there's a lot of manual work there. And so when I think about authoring content at this higher level of abstraction, I don't think text is it, right? Like everyone's like, hmm. oh, text is the, the be all end all. I think us as visual creators know the value of having like a virtual track camera and yeah. being able to do stuff like that. But I think using all those modalities, we'll be able to describe a video kind of like we describe in HTML, like a web page today. So in like HTML, there's this notion of like the document object model, right? Like here's the title, here's a bunch of the headings, the subheadings, here's a bunch of iframes with content embedded in it. I'm envisioning a future where we're able to like author a creator, like let's say an advertisement or a short movie at that higher level of abstraction saying, Hey, here are the like objects and spaces in a scene, the locations, here's like the, the entities in a scene, the humans, the actors, here's more information about them. And then you can sort of like have this content be responsive to whatever, you know, sort of like, you know, objective you have. If it's like, Hey, I want to take the same ad creative. You're talking about nerfs and all this stuff, right? Like Let's say it's like a ad for a new freaking Hyundai car. Mm -hmm. You've got this type of talent. You got this backdrop. You got the car. You got this hero shot. Right now, it'd be like an expensive red or Ari Alexa shoot in some LA warehouse, right? Now, imagine we authored this at this higher level of abstraction. 
you did the mocap, you've got all the pieces down, you compose the scene graph, right? This document object model of the video. And then I want to localize it to India. Boom. Swap out the background instead of Seoul, South Korea, it's freaking Mumbai skyline. Ch swap out the talent with whoever you want. This, that, and the other thing. And I think like that ability for content to be responsive and adaptive, I think is so exciting, right? And I think like when I think of things like that and explain this to a bunch of creators, like there's a lot of people in the industry I talk to that just like, like I'm skeptical. This just doesn't look good. Like doesn't have control or they're like, fuck this. Like this is like they're scraping art station, all the ethical concerns too. But when I, when, when I start talking about things like this, they're like, holy crap, it's not zero sum, right? Like it's not mm -hmm. like these are the mediums at our disposal and now machines can automate that away. We're going to create these newer canvases for our imagination and we couldn't possibly author for this type of content if we didn't have things like Unreal Engine, Neural Radiance Fields, these generative models, these large language models, these like text to voice generators, all this stuff, I think like, in confluence, kind of like this Voltron sort of coming together will let us create really, really amazing things. So I'm excited to see how like the consumption media, the way we author content changes and goes beyond just flat video into this like higher level of abstraction. I wow. love that. I love that. My personal excitement really translate to tools that speed up the process so I can focus more on the things that I love rather than spending time on the things that are time consuming okay. and or they are manual labor. So for my case would be like, I would love to see a tool that can edit videos for me, you know, oh, cut gosh, the scenes. Yeah. And imagine you give your script as a text because what, what we do, for example, we shoot the clip is like 50 clips. He's talking, I'm talking, I'll give him the script, cut everything, put them in order, you know, do the sound, add some sound effect, and I'm ready. Oh, my God. I would kill for that tool right now. I promise <laughs> you guys, we can have another episode later on, probably in the year. And probably some of the stuff we just talked about today has already become a reality. And we just look back and be like, do you guys remember we talked about this? It's going to be really fun. <laughs> I definitely, uh, you know, observe both of your sort of excitements, what you guys are excited about, and I would love for that to happen as well. Thank you so much again for your time. It was such an honor and such a blast speaking with you and learning about the way you do things, and I'm sure it's helped so many people watching as well. So thank you. Is there anything that uh, we need to know about what you're working on just before we go? Uh, something that people can be looking forward to uh, uh, on your Twitter, on TikTok, you know, your website. I'll put I'll put every single link in the yeah. description. Your YouTube, your Twitter, like TikTok, everything, so people can really follow you on. Because I personally followed you for quite some time now, and the good thing is I learned a lot every single time that you know you post something. It's it's a learning lesson yeah. for me. So I think it would be for everybody else is, as well. Are you doing a newsletter at the moment? I do, but I'm not very regular with it, unfortunately. Yeah, so okay. like if, if I do, I do have a Creative Tech Digest. When I have things mm. to say, I put them there. But largely Twitter is where I'm basically openly sharing my workflows. So if mm. you're interested in either like the cool new stuff that's happening and then like how I make some of my content, I put it right there. Uh, if I were to plug one thing, which I'm pretty bad at plugging, I'm still getting used to that part of the <laughs> influencer lifestyle, I say, is uh, so I am a part of this, like uh, a group of AI influencers on Maven, and we're creating our own AI courses. So I have one coming out on multimodal AI creation. It starts uh, right after 4th of July. Enrollment is open right now. We've already got a great cohort. So if you're interested in like, honestly, I've got most of the information available on my Discord on my Substack and on my Twitter. But if you want a little bit more accountability, and if you want to A, understand 
all the models at your disposal and then understand their pros and cons and sort of where they're going in the research trajectory. And then how do you like put them together with very simple tools like CapCut to create some of the types of content we talked about, basically 3D scanning, reskinning reality, creating virtual avatars, making all those Balenciaga type of videos that have been going viral. There is going to be this generative AI masterclass on multimodal creation. So if you're interested in that, just go look, look it up, multimodal creation on maven.com. And uh, yeah, be awesome to see you there. If not, hit me up on Twitter DMs. Uh, I try to check it at least once a week and uh, always down to collaborate, always down to share thoughts. And thank you all also for reaching out. And it was really awesome to be here. No worries, thank man. Thank you so much. We'll put the link to the course as well in the description for anyone's interested. And thank you again to everybody watching. We'll see you guys again next week with another guest. So thank you. Until then, ciao. ciao.